credit scores, down payments, interest rates. Car buying can be a numbers game, but you don't have to be a math expert to get the keys to your dream car. Just use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. Crunch your numbers and get personalized results so you know exactly how much you'll pay each month for your car. It's like having a magic wand for your wallet. Presto! The car you've been wanting is now within reach. So hit the road and leave your calculator at home. Auto Trader. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry over there. And this is Stuff You Should Know about people who have really bad luck. Ten, nine of them. Yeah, we can't. I don't think we've ever done a, ten, a full top ten list, have we? No. That, that, that should be our last episode. Yeah. It's like stuff you should know is ten biggest regrets. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a great idea. Yeah, that'll be the last one. All right, let's write that down. I, I, there's no, we don't have ten regrets. <laughs> yeah, I guess we couldn't do a full ten. Oh, actually, we could probably come up with ten. No, we couldn't. VidCon, number one. That's a big one. <laughs> this intro is definitely up there, too. Number two. See, yeah. we're on our way. All right, good. Um, how you feeling? Pretty good? I'm great. You feel lucky, punk? Uh, I, I'm a pretty lucky person, I will say that. Uh, I would agree with that. Or, I think or good fortune. Are. Uh-huh. My friends have called me the rabbit's foot over the years. Yep. That's why they're always rubbing you. But that's, <laughs> that's mainly for narrowly escaping trouble. More than anything. Uh, how about a story, Chuck? Lay it on us. Oh, just, I mean, I, w- I was very uh, famous among my group of friends for getting pulled over by police and not getting tickets. Right. I mean, at one point, it was, it had literally happened like 14 times in a row or something over a span of like 10 or 12 years. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, was, it happened a lot that I never, and I, I didn't get my first ticket till, geez, probably in my 30s, mid 30s. How did you, how, what happened? Did you talk your way out of it or? Yeah, you know what you do, man? And my brother always gets a ticket and mm-hmm. he's much nicer than I am. Mm-hmm. But you just got to be as humble, 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 humble as you can be. And if you show the slightest bit of attitude, then that police officer, in my experience, will delight in writing you that ticket. Sure. I mean, even if it's, if it's a sideways look. And I basically just throw myself at the mercy of the court on the side of the road. I'm like, I'm so sorry, officer. I, you are, you should have pulled me over. You did the right <laughs> thing. I was wrong, and I'm sorry. There's no excuse. Here's, I was going to eat these French fries, <laughs> but you should take them. You're the hero here. I think they're always a little disarmed, and they're like, oh, oh, oh okay. Well, I guess I can let you off with a warning. Hmm. I don't know. That's been my experience. All right. There's Chuck advice right there. Yeah. So you get out of 14 tickets. Mm -hmm. So did you forget to the last, the 15th time? Did you forget? Did you sneer, call him a pig? What? No, I think it was just one of those things where like they were writing the ticket even before I had a chance to do my little song and dance. Uh And they brought me the ticket. And I was kind of like, well, wait a minute. Don't you know who I am? (laughs) Hmm. 
<laughs> I'm the guy that gets out of tickets. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say I'm Chuck from Stuff You Should Know. Uh, no, that means nothing. That's how you. That's how you get out of them these days, buddy. No. Well, um, we're talking today about some people who have very bad luck, and you know, like a lot of these lists usually are just like uh, no to this one, no to that one, no, this is wrong. Um, I think we tried to do a list once where. Like, oh, man, I can't remember which one it was, but, like, every single entry was just, like, just false, right? Yeah. That's only the case with, like, three of these this time, which I'm pretty, that's not a bad batting average for a listicle. Yeah, and some of these are, uh, the word luck kind of bothers me sometimes because, as is the case, we'll go ahead and get to the first one. Uh, Ron Wayne, who was one of the original three partners of Apple Computers, that's not bad luck. Ron Wayne made a poor business decision. Have you, uh, that's a good point. Have you, know? you ever heard of Ron Wayne before? No. Had you? No, I haven't. And had I heard his name, I would have been like, he sounds like a porn actor, but he's not <laughs> a porn actor. Oh, no, that was that was another guy. I can't say his real name, though. Uh, who? <laughs> I demand that you say it. I'll tell you off mic. Okay, so um, he, turns out, this guy was not a pornography actor. He (laughs) was one of the three founders of Apple. And as far as I had known to this point, there were two founders of Apple. Turns out there were three at the beginning for like the first 12 days. Yeah, so go back to 1976 in our Wayback Machine and nerdy little Jobs and nerdy little Wozniak are young guys uh, in their 20s and they had this great... uh, they didn't know it at the time. Well, they may have known it or suspected, but this this great uh, vision for the future. But they were kind of kids, and they didn't have any experience. So they looked to a guy named Ron Wayne, who was in his 40s, uh, to come in and kind of help uh, what they called with adult supervision. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, they were programmers from Atari, but, yeah, they didn't have the actual business sense or whatever. And right? Atari was just a party job. At the time. I believe so. Yeah. But um, I had no idea Atari produced Apple, though, did you? Oh, yeah. I I did a bunch of Atari uh, research stuff for my tech stuff guest spot. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, we did a history of Atari two-parter. Oh, speaking of guest spots, man, let me just also give a shout-out real quick. Sorry to interrupt this little entry, but I was on um, our good friend John Goforth's and our new friend Brent's podcast hysteria 51 recently oh nice yeah we talked about the fermi paradox for like an hour and it was awesome so go check that out hysteria 51 go check that out okay (laughs) so plug out right so we're in 1976 uh waz and jobs have recruited one uh juan wayne ron (laughs) wayne to be the adult in the room to help with engineering documentation and it was actually ron wayne who uh who drafted the very first Apple contract and said, you know, this is what they agreed on. He did just make it up, which said how much everyone is going to get. Uh, he got 10% to Jobs and Wozniak's 45. Mm-hmm. And he even created the first Apple logo, which was not the logo we know and love now. It was a, uh, it was like a woodcut um, style thing of uh, Isaac Newton under the apple tree. <laughs> right. Not bad. Sounds terrible. Yeah. I disagree. I think it sounds ugly. <laughs> so um, Ron Wayne, though, while he was there, he very quickly was like, I don't know if this is my kind of place. I thought it was a good idea. I like what these guys are doing. But this company in a garage, Steve Jobs keeps taking acid during the middle of business hours. <laughs> um, Did he or, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Steve Jobs thought he was pretty cool from what I understand. Sure. 
Um, he, uh, Ron Wayne was like, I, I don't, I don't think I fit in here. Also, apparently he was worried that he was going to have to pony up for, you know, whatever business debts they incurred. I think that was a big deal. Uh, and he was like, all right, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah, because so, he was an adult and he was like, I've got a house and like, I've, I'm a real adult human. Like they're going to turn to me certainly mm-hmm. when they yeah. need dough. So he he cashed out in in twelve days. Twelve days after they established their contract, and the contract um, was kept by Ron Wayne. Actually, and we'll get to that in a second. But he cashed out for twenty three hundred dollars. Two hundred and thirty thousand, you say? No, two thousand three hundred. <laughs> yeah, man. Which is still today worth less than like ten grand. Yeah. Um, and he didn't even get it all at once. He got eight hundred right then. And then uh, he agreed to take 1500 later. And that was 1976. And in 1980, Apple went public, and everybody involved became an instant millionaire. And years later, it hit the trillion-dollar mark for valuation. And all the while, Ron Wayne got to watch this company grow and grow and grow and realize that he'd sold off 10% of the stake in the company mm. for 2300 bucks. Yeah, and apparently if he had held all those stocks, uh, he'd be worth close to $100 billion. So he he takes issue with that. He said he probably lost out on tens of millions. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on what, like you can't, since you can't go back and uh, do it all over again, mm-hmm. like Eddie Money says. Right. <laughs> uh, I guess there's always the thing of like, well, yeah, but he always maintains, I would have gotten out after that before the big cash in anyway, probably. So I don't like to look at it as that sort of a loss is what he tells himself. Basically, or else I would have gone totally insane a long time ago. Yeah, but he did apparently, uh, he wrote a Facebook essay Mm -hmm. and said, I probably though would have been around in 1980 and gotten some pretty good change and and I think regrets it. Yeah, he said had he known that and everybody was going to become a millionaire in four years, he definitely would have hung in there. But he just... It's hindsight's twenty twenty, you know? Yeah, and the cherry and, on top here is pretty interesting, though. Yeah. Uh, you said he kept that contract, that very first Apple contract mm-hmm. that he drew up, and he kept it, and he auctioned it off in the early 90s for how much? 500 simoleons. $500. Mm-hmm. And then Which what happened? Not bad. It was just a piece of paper he had hanging around. Well, sure. Somebody turned around and auctioned it off. Years later, in 2011, for almost 1.6 million. <laughs> Poor Man. Ron Wayne. <laughs> I know. Now that one's bad luck. Wonder what he did though with his life. Uh, he wrote essays on Facebook. No, I mean, I bet he did okay. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Probably I mean, not he... Steve Jobs okay, but I doubt if he like you know got a got a low wage hourly paying job. I don't know. He became Eddie Money's tour manager. Oh, well, things worked out then. <laughs> right. And every time Eddie Money sang, I want to go back a tear <laughs> down Ron Wayne's face. That's right. So um, I think we should move on. We're going to leave Ron Wayne because my hat also, we should definitely tip our hats to anyone who faced adversity like this and was like, S happens. Yeah. And has had tip to Ron Wayne for that one. Um and Hodges did not have that kind of experience. She is the only person, as far as anyone knows, the only human being in the history, in recorded history of humanity, to have been hit by a meteorite. <laughs> I'm laughing and I shouldn't. Um, well, actually, 
I, uh, she didn't get that hurt, so that's why I feel okay laughing. It's not yeah. like it fell on her head no. and killed her. Uh, it's November 30, 1954 in Alabama, and an 8.5-pound uh, meteorite uh, came through her roof, mm-hmm. bounced off of a radio, and hit her in the hip. Yeah, it makes you wonder, like, if, if she had been, you know, where the radio was, yeah. and it, this wasn't like a bounced, like uh, a... Ricochet? Yeah, a ricochet. <laughs> I mean, how much worse would things have been? Yeah, probably dead. There's a. There, I saw a picture on Reddit of her just randomly. We had already picked this episode and started researching, and I saw a picture of her bruise on Reddit, and it was um, pretty nasty, pretty nasty little bruise. Yeah. But that was about as bad as it got physically. Um, so she was laying on the couch. A meteorite came through her roof, hit her radio, hit her, and... Um, she became almost immediately a, a media sensation because word got out very quickly that a woman had been struck by a meteorite, probably the first and only person ever. Yeah, and it, and that's super rare. Like, it's rare It's rare for a meteorite to fall just in an urban area where people mm-hmm. live or suburban area where people live. I say, I don't know if I would call Alabama urban. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just not usual. Like, usually meteorites... You know, there's a lot of water on Earth. Usually, they'll just land in the ocean somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's big news if a meteorite hits anywhere near people, much less hitting a person. Right. There is a, um, a meteorologist named Michael Reynolds who told National Geographic, get this. He said, you have a better chance of being hit by a tornado, a bolt of lightning, and a hurricane at the same time than you do a meteorite. I'm not sure how he actually quantified that. But I, that's one of the better quotes I've read in a while. Yeah, and this is where it gets, this is just so America and USA, is there was a court battle between her and her landlord because her landlord was like, that's my space rock because <laughs> it's my house. Yeah, And she, and Ann Hodges was like, no, that's my space rock because it hit me in the hip. Right. And they went to court and Hodges actually won and got to keep that uh, – Sadly, ultimately valueless meteorite. Yes, yeah, she's she's settled. Actually, she ended up paying the landlord five hundred bucks for the right to the rock. But by the time this was finally settled, two years later, they found out that nobody cared any longer. It was yeah. old news, so nobody wanted to buy the meteorite. And you might think, well, okay, it's not clear that anyone would have ever wanted to buy the meteorite to begin with. Not true. They have a neighbor just down the road who had just the tiniest little piece of that space rock and sold it at the time this thing was a big media sensation and was able to buy a new house and a new car from the proceeds. So the the Hodges were like, clearly we've got the space rock. We're going to cash in. We're going to buy the state of Alabama with the proceeds. But two years later, it was totally valueless. And um, Ann Hodges actually had a just just kept taking turns for the worse and ended up dying in a nursing home at age 49 after having a nervous breakdown from the the whole ordeal. Yeah, it's very sad. Um but that meteorite is on display at the Alabama Museum of Natural History and I hope that there is at least a a small placard that memorializes her. Surely there is, right? I would I would hope so. Yeah, which that that would be a nice thing after a string of bad luck. That's pretty bad luck. Should we take a break? I think we should. All right, we're going to take a break and talk about uh, the unluckiest person in the music industry right after this. 
Mother's Day is right around the corner. And in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Chuck, I have a tad bit of anxiety. Because you hate the this. Beatles? No, no. <laughs> okay. No, I have anxiety about this one just because it's so rotten and rough. I feel so bad for this guy. Well, here's the thing. Uh, before the break, I called former first Beatles drummer, not former first, but former and first Beatles drummer, Pete Best, the unluckiest man in music. Mm-hmm. He's been called that. Uh, that's not true either. Pete Best didn't have bad luck. Pete Best didn't have good chops. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. So, oh, okay. Well, that's, okay. That's totally different. Yeah. I thought it was, I, I didn't think it was bad luck necessarily. Obviously, it didn't jibe with the group. But I thought maybe it was like he had to walk around being like, I have a terrible personality. And that's why I'm not a Beatle or whatever. No, we'll, we'll get to that. So, let's go back in time. Uh, Pete Best, uh, in the very early days of the Beatles in the 1950s when they were known as the Quarrymen, um, his mom, he was a drummer, and his mom had the he owned something called the Casbah Coffee Club in mm-hmm. Liverpool. Cool. And she was she was cool, and she was very like ahead of her time as far as um, the Liverpool music scene, very much out in front of it. So it's the kind of deal where like, well, Pete's a drummer, and his mom owns a a, a place <laughs> where we can play. I got gotcha. you. So he's in the band, and it's good. Because uh, now we got a place where we can gig, and we got a drummer that's that can play okay, <laughs> and yeah. he's handsome. That was a big part of it. Was he? Yeah, that was a big thing over the years. What that, that was rumored that he was kicked out because Paul said he was too handsome and he didn't want any competition. Are you? Is he still around? Yeah, he's alive. Uh, okay, well, I'm not going to say the next part then. <laughs> so um, he he was enough. So I guess at the time the Beatles by. By the time Pete Best was kind of brought on, he wasn't like officially brought on as a, as like the Beatles Beatles as we think of them today, where there was like four of them. There was like a rotating 
bunch of drummers, and Pete Best was one of those drummers, right? Yeah, but he played, I mean, he was, he kind of, it was sort of like when I rotated in stuff you should know early on a little bit. Uh, like, there was still a rotation going for a short time, I think, and then everyone else just went away. Right. Like, Pete Best played like 80-something gigs with the Beatles, pre-Hamburg, I think. Oh, okay. And then they took him to Hamburg, which apparently was a big, big turning point for everybody. They played like 80 shows a week in Hamburg. I saw a great quote. Um, they said that, so in Hamburg is where the Beatles like really started to become like the sure. Beatles, like they coalesced into a band. I saw that they arrived wearing lilac sport jackets and trousers and left wearing black leather jackets and jeans. And it's where they learned sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, Pete Best wasn't into the drugs, though, like the other three guys. Oh, really? So that was a problem. Sure. Um, That's a buzzkill. <laughs> when the one guy in the room is just sitting there staring at you, judgy. Yeah, well. I would. I mean, that's kind of a buzzkill, I would guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. Probably so. I think they were all, like, doing speed back then. Oh, sure. Because they were playing literally, like, six or seven shows a night. Were they really playing that many? Oh, it was ridiculous. Wow, yeah. Yeah. So um, he was in a group called the Blackjacks before that, though. Went to Hamburg with the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And then right after that, the Beatles go back to England in 1962. And they were just about to go into the studio to record their first uh, singles for EMI. And uh, legendary manager Brian Epstein called up and said, sorry, bloke, uh, the boys want you out. And it's already been arranged. Yeah. Meaning, like, it. don't even bother. It's yeah. done. Which is sad. Um, and Pete Best took it pretty hard, from what I understand. For uh, hor- In a horrible twist of irony, he ended up working at the unemployment office. But working there, not right. hanging out there. Um, <laughs> and by this time, like, he had made a name for himself around Liverpool as, as a musician and a Beatle. Um, the reason why... It, He's called the unluckiest man in music is not because he was a Beatle at one point in time, but that he was a Beatle at one point in time and was kicked out of the band a few weeks before the Beatles blew up. Yeah. And um, it almost makes you wonder, like, did they blow up because they moved on to Ringo or was it like that was just bad timing? Well, I mean, here's the deal. Uh, There are interviews out there with both um, John and Paul there was always been the rumor, like I said, that Pete's uh, handsomeness threatened the band. Um, that is not true. Paul was on record as saying, like, you know, it's just something that happens early in the days of bands. Like, Ring- we were just really struck by how great Ringo was. Pete Best sat out one gig because he, he was sick or something. Mm-hmm. Ringo sat in, and they were all just like, wow. Like, they all felt it. And it was just sort of that magic happened where they're like, oh, boy, I know it's got to happen. Um, John, for his part, said, you know, it had nothing to do with his looks. He said he was just kind of a crap drummer. I mean, he was, John was not the nicest guy in the world. Mm-hmm. So he really kind of threw threw it all on the table and was like, he wasn't a good drummer. He just wasn't. He was a good first drummer, and clearly it was time to move on from him. Uh, and it was mainly because his mom owned a place where we could play. Gotcha. Not very nice. Gotcha. No, but I mean, that doesn't make him unlucky. No, he didn't have the chops and, uh, you know. He, I mean, he's he's reckoned with it. I saw an article from last year mm-hmm. where he was like, he never spoke to the, the th- other three guys again. Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah, me and Paul, I'd love to sit down and like have a scotch and talk about it. And he's like, the door's open. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I don't yeah. know if Paul's going to do that, though. Maybe not. 
he was on Howard Stern, Paul was, and Howard was like, do you ever just going to write him a check just out of guilt? <laughs> <laughs> what did Paul say? He's just like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> he did get royalties, though, later on when the Beatles anthology came out uh-huh. uh, because that included stuff uh, from Pete Best. So he, he ended up getting some money. Yeah, he made out okay. Yeah. I think the lesson here is don't ever get sick. Yeah. That's the key, everybody. That's right. So uh, we're going to go from 1960s Liverpool to over to the New Orleans area where they have hurricanes. Supposedly they have a hurricane party every time the wind blows, I've heard. But they actually do have legitimate hurricanes. And those hurricanes can do a lot of damage, uh, as we saw in 2005 with Hurricane Katrina. By the time Hurricane Katrina rolled around, a woman named Melanie Martinez was on her fourth house, having been destroyed by a hurricane. Yeah. Um, Previously, George in 1998, Juan in 1985, and Betsy in 1965 had destroyed her house by the time Katrina came around. But after Katrina, everybody learned their lesson. They're like, okay, we've been taking this way too insouciantly. Like, we need to really actually, like, protect New Orleans from flooding, from hurricanes. And so the federal government stepped in, the government in Louisiana stepped in, and they really fortified New Orleans so that years later, seven years later, actually to the day of Katrina uh, making landfall, when Isaac made landfall, New Orleans held up. It was a pretty big hurricane, but it, it weathered, New Orleans weathered it. Unfortunately, in little tiny town of Bathwaite, just a little south of New Orleans, which I thought south of New Orleans was like the Caribbean or the Gulf, I guess. Um, there's a little town called Bathwaite. They did not fortify this town. And it just so happened that that's where Melanie Martinez built another house that proved to be her fifth one that was destroyed by a hurricane. Yeah, this is truly bad luck. Um, granted, all of those houses were in the, the same floodplain. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's not like everybody's house was destroyed every time. Like this was truly bad luck to have five houses lost. Right. Uh, and this last one uh, before Isaac, she was selected for uh, an A and E reality show, Hideous Houses. Got a twenty thousand dollar makeover, brand new kitchen, new appliances, and a new sewing room. Yeah. Uh, and apparently it, that episode aired just a few weeks before Isaac came around, destroyed that house too. And, you know, when they asked her in 2012, like, why do you keep building here? You know, it's like everyone else. She's like, it's, this is my home. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm, I want to live where I was born and raised, and this is my home. Yeah. Can you imagine what that phone call's like? It's like, hey, I'm a producer with Hideous Houses, and your house has been selected <laughs> to be on Hideous Houses. She probably applied. Isn't that how that works? No, I think they just go scout your house. And really? Like, no, I'm sure you apply. Now I think it varies from show to show. So for that last time with uh, Hurricane Isaac in 2012, she and her husband and their pets and um, Melanie Martinez's elderly mom barely escaped with their life. They had to hammer through their roof. They were trapped in the attic yeah. with the floodwaters rising. They had to hammer a hole into the roof and climb out where they were rescued. Yeah, man. Okay, I mean, geez. At least they got out. They did, but even, so the thing that makes it really bad luck, real quick, Chuck, is that Melanie Martinez said she would never have stayed around for that hurricane. She because of her elderly mother, she wouldn't have risked her her health. Yeah, um, they got stuck there because her van broke down. Well, but she got out. Okay, there you go. 
You know, I mean, she couldn't save the house, so. Yeah, it's true. It's very sad. Uh, all right, so this next one is, this is pretty remarkable. Whenever I hear about people that are, uh, and I've heard stories like this over the years where mm-hmm. people were, had the bad luck to be in uh, various places where like terrorist attacks have happened, like mm-hmm. more than once. Right. Uh, and this couple, this British couple, uh, Jason Cairns Lawrence and his partner Jenny, they had this happen three times. Uh, they were in New York City mm-hmm. on 9-11. Right. Uh, on a, just a regular holiday there. So that's number one. Um, a few years after that, they went vacationing in uh, in their very own London mm-hmm. in July 2005. And just a day into that trip uh, was when the suicide bombers attacked the London Underground, mm-hmm. uh, which was horrific. They I don't think they were in the Underground at the time. But I imagine at this point they're like, all right, what's going on here? A few years after that, in 2008, they're like, all right, we're going to get out of town again. And this time we're going to Mumbai, India, mm-hmm. and another terrorist attack uh, when the luxury hotel was uh, was attacked in the railway station, and 174 people died there. They were at all three of those. All three. The three biggest terrorist attacks, I guess, in the West, in the in the 21st century, they were there for. Yeah, the deadliest ones, at least, and they yeah. uh, thankfully survived all three of those. But I imagine. Uh, after those three trips, they're probably not going on vacation very much anymore. <laughs> they they built a pool in their backyard, and they're like, this is what we're doing from now on. Man, I can't imagine. I really can't either, to tell you the truth. Should we take a break? Let's take a break, and we're going to come back and talk about some more hard luck cases after this, okay? Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was booted! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Chuck, 
So uh, this one I can't quite put my finger on whether this is whether Alexander Graham Bell is a no good thief or that. not. <laughs> I don't know because I think I I saw some more recent stuff and I think that his image has been a little more reformed. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll get to that. But if you're in Italy and you're a little kid and you are taught who invented the telephone, mm-hmm. they do not teach you that it was Alexander Graham Bell. As a matter of fact, they may spit when they say the name Alexander Graham Bell because they um, very much believe that Alexander Graham Bell stole the idea for the telephone from Antonio Meucci, who was an Italian inventor who seemed to have invented something very telephone-like um, at least a few years before Alexander Graham Bell supposedly invented his. Yeah, he actually filed a patent, preliminary patent that is, mm-hmm. in the U.S. five years before Bell for what he called the Teletrofono, which is a much better name than telephone. Do you think so? Oh, I, th- I would love it if people were like, can I borrow your Teletrofono? Let me see your tro, bro. <laughs> yeah, see there? <laughs> right. I love that. So, um... Antonio Meucci, uh, he definitely realized that you could send sound over electrically activated copper wires. Back in like the 1830s, he knew this. Um, And he started kind of messing around with it. And at one time, he created basically a telephone between his workshop and his his wife's bedroom because his wife had been stricken with uh, some sort of paralysis. And to be able to communicate with her without having to go in and check on her all the time, he basically rigged up a telephone. This was in the, I think, the 18, uh, 1860s um, in New York, right? Yeah. Um, and he even debuted this invention to the press, but he didn't speak English. And the English-speaking press in New York didn't speak Italian. Yeah. So it was really just covered by the Italian press. But this guy in, in 1860 gave a demonstration of his telephone. And um, again, it wasn't until 1876 that Alexander Graham Bell got his patent. And like you said, Meucci, he filed a preliminary patent. And I looked into this. You know what those are? Yeah. So the preliminary patent is basically this. You pay a much lower fee to basically put a hold on your invention. You say, this thing is coming. If anybody else starts sniffing around with their own invention, you let me know. And then the patent office will give you, will give you three months to file a formal patent, which is, again, more expensive. So the, the idea is that Meucci didn't have enough money to file a full patent. So he, he placed a preliminary patent and didn't have enough money to renew it. You have to renew it annually. And Alexander Graham Bell swooped in. Yeah, and here's the thing. Uh, I thought, well, I mean, there have been plenty of inventions where people working in a vacuum came up with a similar idea with similar technology. Sure. But Miyuchi, uh actually shared a space with Bell. It's and that, not, that's when I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's not a good look for Bell, for sure. Yeah, and then I did a little more research. I was like, did Alexander Graham Bell steal the telephone? And this was this is not news. And I saw an article that was like, yes, he stole it from Elisha Gray. And I was like, who? Well, he's the one who supposedly went to the patent office the same day within hours of Bell to file a patent on the phone and lost out. Yeah, so there are several people that uh, claim that Bell, it was not his original idea. Well, Meucci actually sued Bell. Oh, yeah. And the case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. But then Meucci died before it was resolved and they threw the case out. Very sad. But the House of Representatives in 2002 
voted on a resolution to say, yes, Antonio Meucci is the inventor of the telephone as far as we in the U.S. are concerned. Um, What I saw, what I referred to earlier, that that I was wondering if his image had been reformed. He he had his extensive notes about his invention that he would have had to have falsified and that apparently had been scrutinized by historians. So if he was a fraud, he was a really uh, methodical fraud. I guess. Well, that's one of the complaints with Elisha Gray is that the uh, the sketches were like virtually identical to Gray's. Oh, really? Yeah. So who knows? Huh. Wow. Well, we I think we need to do at least a short stuff on Alexander Graham Bell. Yeah, I think that could be a full epi. Okay. Full epi. Uh, yes. <laughs> full epi pen right in your thigh. All right. Like the time you got stung by that bee, you remember that? <laughs> I know. Yeah. That was harrowing. <laughs> uh, all right, so this one's uh, this one's actually kind of fun um, because I like it when the bad luck isn't like super like devastating to someone's life and that they kind of roll with it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, Costas Mitsotakis definitely rolls with it. Yeah, no, nothing bad happened here. Uh, there's a an annual lottery in Spain that dates back to 1812 called El Gordo. Uh, it's a Christmas lottery, and it's a big, big, they call it El Gordo's, the fat one, because <laughs> it's a big, big fat payout. Yeah. And it's a very, very much a tradition in Spain. And in 2011, the jackpot was, at the time, the biggest ever, at uh, close to a billion dollars, 950 million bucks. And there's this little town called a Sodeto, and people in this town... Is it Italian? Uh-huh, No. Okay. I didn't say Sodeto. It was close. No, that's just a little flair. Okay. So in Sodeto, uh, residents there would pool money together sometimes to buy their lottery tickets because uh, it costs 26 bucks a piece. It's not like going down and buying like the, I don't even know how much Lotto costs in America. Is it in like a dollar? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure. Uh, Twenty six. We did a lotto episode back in the day, didn't we? I think we talked about El Gordo in the lotto episode because well, I, think I, so. re- I recognize the name. Yeah, yeah, El Gordo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the tickets were twenty six bucks at least in two thousand eleven, and this town pools their money together. Seventy different families uh, all chipped in uh, because times were tough, and they didn't spring for their own ticket, and they won. They did win. Um, this town of like. Simple farmers whose backs were kind of up against the wall from the economic downturn you referenced. Apparently, they were also experiencing a prolonged drought, too. Everybody was a little tense. Overnight, had all of their money troubles just go away. Um, Every single household in the town won a minimum of 130 U.S. dollars, 130,000, I'm sorry, up to millions, right? Like yeah. if they, they bought like full full chunks of the tickets um, from this lotto. And so all these people like rode their tractors into town on Christmas Day to celebrate that they had all just won the lottery, all except one guy, Costas Mitsotakis, whose house was not visited by the people selling the lottery tickets for the town fundraiser and who didn't buy a ticket as a result. Right. He lived a little bit on the outskirts of town um, with a woman, his uh, romantic partner at the time. (laughs) And she actually bought in and won 100,000 American dollars. No, I guess it was 100,000 euros. Okay, so yeah, it was about 130,000 American dollars. Yeah, so she won and he did not. 
Uh, they are not together now. I, I don't know if that had anything to do with it. I'm not saying it does. I think they had already split up. Oh, okay. But at any rate, he didn't win any money. But he's a filmmaker, and mm-hmm. he was like, his quote was, it, it was really a gift from heaven as if someone had given me the perfect script. So he decided to make a documentary about this town and about this lotto win and about these villagers who apparently did not change their ways much. They all still lived very simply, and they all still shared, how uh, you know, like lots of family in a single house. And mm-hmm. uh, it was really kind of heartwarming. And I read an article from just like a year and a half ago where he was supposedly finishing it up, but then I never saw anything about the actual documentary. So I don't know if it was ever released or finished fully. I also read that he made out okay. He'd been trying to sell his property there for a while, but because of the economic downturn, he couldn't get rid of it. And right after, somebody bought it from him. Well, that's good. Hopefully at full asking price, you know? Yeah, and he seems like a good guy. He was kind of like, you know, I didn't buy a ticket. Yeah. What are you going to do? Make a film about it, I guess. As happens. That's right. So hat tip to uh, Kostas Mitsotakis, too. That's right. Um, So, Chuck... Yes. We're moving along. We're going from Spain to right here in Atlanta. Yeah. Do you remember the 96 Olympics? I do because uh, I was on a road trip out west. Uh, my friend and I, that's when we took our like two and a half month trip in mm-hmm. a Volkswagen van. And we're like, we're getting out of Atlanta for the Olympics. You did not miss much. Yeah. I remember everybody in Atlanta who owned a business sunk tons of cash into their business to revamp it for Olympic fever. Yeah. And no one left downtown. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. They just stayed downtown. But one of the other things about the um, 96 Olympics, aside from like one of the most mediocre, maybe actually just outright bad opening ceremonies. Pretty bad. I just remember uh, being on the road in, in a cheap hotel room in New Mexico and seeing uh, stainless steel pickup trucks. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, my God, what's going on? <laughs> so it, bad. That's so Atlanta. That's uh, hot Atlanta right there. Yeah, jeez. Um, in addition to that, the 96 Olympics is also remembered as the Centennial Olympics. It was 100 years after the first modern Olympic Games in 1896. But really, more than anything, it's remembered for the Olympic Park bombing, which is a huge deal. And this is, I mean, it was memorable because it was a big deal. Like, the, this was an act of domestic terrorism here in the United States, and it was at the Olympics. And it actually could have been way worse than it was. One one poor woman from, I believe, Albany or Leesburg, Georgia, died. Um, I think a cameraman from Turkey died from a heart attack running to the scene. But, like, 100 people were injured. But right before that bomb went off, it was a 40-pound pipe bomb filled with um, screws and nails and all sorts of projectiles. Um, there are a lot of people standing around it watching a concert by Jack Mack and the Heart Attack at like 1 a.m. in Olympic Park. Um, and had they not been moved by a security guard named Richard Jewell, surely more people would have died. Yeah, so Jewell sees this backpack. Uh, again, this is uh, now uh, a backpack on the ground. Like everyone would be like, whoa, 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 what's that thing doing there? See something, say something, see something, say something. Yeah, 96, it was just a year after the Oklahoma City bombing. It wasn't like this was on everyone's mind at the time. And uh, Jewel said, uh, hey, I think we should get out of here. There's a backpack on the ground. Something smells fishy. Um, And I don't think he meant there was literal fish in the backpack. (laughs) (laughs) 
Sorry, that was yeah, terrible. It's okay. And he got people out of there and alerted authorities, and they started clearing the area pretty heavily. And very quickly, Richard Jules on the news is a local hero. A national hero. Yeah, national hero. And uh, everything was going great until all of a sudden he was looked at as a person of interest. Like the next day. Yeah. Apparently the AJC got a scoop from the the Atlanta PD that the feds and everybody were starting to wonder if Richard Jewell wasn't the type of guy who would plan a bomb in order to put himself in a position of being a hero. Yeah, they they were like, he fits the profile. I remember all that stuff going down. Yeah, and it's crazy how you can see somebody differently when people, like, paint him a certain way, you know? And, like, yeah. like he just looked like he had that mustache. What's he hiding with that mustache? Or his eyes are a little beady, aren't they? And he had been charged with um, impersonating an officer, so he's clearly, like, a wannabe cop right. kind of thing. And, um... He looked really bad. And then finally, in October, the FBI was like, oh, Richard Jewell, no, no, we cleared him. He's not a he's not a person of interest. It was surely somebody else. But by this time, Richard Jewell's name had been drugged through the mud yeah. associated with a major act of terrorism at the Olympics in the United States um, for months before he was cleared. And it was the damage was was very much done. Yeah. Um, of course, everyone knows the real bomber was Eric Rudolph. Uh, and again, you know, those four months were really rough on Jewel and his family. Mm-hmm. And even after he was cleared in October, it's like, like everyone knew he was cleared, but it, it's still one of those things where like it's attached to his name, you know? Oh yeah. He entered, he went from the suspect phase to the late night talk show monologue joke phase. Yeah. That's not a good transition. No, it isn't. Uh, and very sadly he died at, uh, in 2000 at just the young age of 44, from uh, complications of diabetes. Yep. So he had it rough. He got like a settlement from CNN and New York Times for, I guess, overzealous and unfounded reporting maybe. But yeah. um, it was, uh, it was uh, he, he did not have like a great last part of his life. All right. The last one, folks. Uh, breaking news. Josh emails me about 30 minutes before we record or so and said, mm-hmm. by the way, the number one guy on the list is a fraud. I said he may be a fraud. Oh, I thought you said he was a fraud. Oh, I'm trying to see <laughs> you away here. Oh, okay. Sorry. It's not proven that he's a fraud because, well, well let's just get into all this, okay? Yeah. What's his name? Uh, Selak? Frane. Frano? Frane Selak. Frane? I, everywhere else I saw it, F-A-R-N-E. I don't know what to believe anymore. I know. <laughs> We've just lost touch with reality, Charles. So he has been dubbed the luckiest man in the world for supposedly surviving seven brushes with death, Mm -hmm. ranging from a train uh, going into an icy river to cars going off of cliffs again into icy rivers, Mm -hmm. uh, cars catching on fire, cars plunging off of cliffs, like so much stuff that you're like, can this be true? Especially uh, the plane crash that went down where he supposedly was sucked out of a door and landed on a haystack. Yeah, before the plane crashed. Now, is this real? So, Any of it? So here's the thing. All of this starts in, um, I believe, 2005. Uh-huh. He, he buys a lottery ticket, wins like a, a million dollar or a million euro lottery. And that happened? That definitely happened. Okay. And he was interviewed by the Scotsman, the newspaper, the Scotsman, and 
In this article, he's like, oh, you think it's lucky that I won a million dollars. Let me tell you about some of the unlucky things that have happened to me. And he starts reeling off these stories of like just narrowly escaping death. And the Scotsman's like, wow, that's fantastic. We're going to print this. And the Scotsman printed it. And all of a sudden, it started getting picked up by other news outlets and other news outlets and other news outlets. And then finally, in one of these articles, there was a commenter um, who identified himself as Friday Selak's son, who said, hey, um, not one single journalist has ever independently verified a single one of these stories. This guy's actually my father, and he has always wanted to be famous. So when he was interviewed for winning the lottery, he saw his chance, and he made all of this up. Well, if it was an internet commenter, it must be true. Exactly. That's why I was COAing, because it's like— Is that the only place you found that? Yes, but the point remains correct. It has never been, none of it has ever been independently verified. Oh. So it's not entirely, it's, it's entirely possible that, there, that he wasn't on um, any plane or in, in, a, in a bus accident or that his car crashed. It's not verified that he has been, it hasn't been clearly shown that he hasn't been. It's just this guy makes a really good point that this dude who everybody says is the luckiest man in the world it's possible he made it all up. Now, how can we not get to the bottom of this? <clears throat> what do you mean? Well, I mean, we found out the world is flat and that they fake the moon landing through research. Why right. can't we find out what happened with Frane Selak? Uh, like you and me specifically? Or, or anybody. Like, surely this, you could find this out, right? Uh, yeah, I guess you could. I think no one's gone to the trouble of doing it. It's a good story that everybody likes. It's not really hurting anything for him to be lying and for the lie to be perpetuated. Um, it's more just, uh, it's just kind of laziness among journalism, I guess. Huh. Including us, because I didn't go get to the <laughs> bottom of it. I didn't go independently verify any of his claims. Well, I did see an article that... Uh, is that where you saw it at allthat'sinteresting.com? No, I didn't see it on there. I don't re- I don't remember where I saw the article. I'll have mm. to look. Go ahead. Well, there was an article that talked about the fact that um that mentioned the commenter or whatever and the doubts. Yeah, I think that's become kind of a thing because there was a a, a viral um a viral uh uh video that um that made the rounds that was really really interesting. Um because it's just this cute little animation of this guy's story in his life. And um, I guess I saw the thing about him being it being a possible hoax on BBC. Yeah. So if you put BBC together and all that's interesting, you have legitimate fact. Right. And I apologize for looking at my phone right now, but <laughs> I'm doing a real-time investigation. Mm-hmm. And apparently some people have Googled and s- these plane crashes and uh, things aren't documented so it sounds like it might be uh it might be false claims i don't know okay but even still it's a great story i mean just the fact that this guy made up all of this load of bs sure during an interview is pretty hilarious he's one of the great improv comedians of all time right it's a good way to end things too don't you think i think so well thanks for joining us everybody thanks for putting on (laughs) your smoking jacket and your uh, house slippers um Putting on a, a, a nice... Um, Barry White record. Mm-hmm, and uh, relaxing with us. I yeah. hope you feel relaxed now. Do you feel relaxed, Chuckers? I do. And Jerry does, obviously. Jesus sleep. I know. Um, 
Well, if you want to know more about the unluckiest people in the world, just go look at stuff on the internet. It may or may not be true. Who really cares, right? Yeah. Uh, and since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this one uh, sort of an older one that I forgot about. So apologies to Jessica Breslin, because I told her I would read this a month ago. Oh, boy. Hey, guys, love the recent episode on uh, rape kits, but wanted to make a tiny correction about how the Golden State Killer was caught. Although there was a time that the Golden State Killer's DNA was part of the backlog, the DNA had actually been identified and linked to his crimes since the 90s. The problem was they had no person to compare it to. Uh, This changed in 2018 when they compared it to DNA submitted to a familial DNA base. When a relative submitted their DNA to the familial DNA site, they were able to see that the DNA was related and from there, we're able to narrow down their suspects to two likely family members. Uh, after narrowing it down to those two, they're able to identify their suspect, collect a sample of his DNA to compare it to the Golden State Killers. Uh, however, still good proof on why testing backlog kits is still so important. Uh, you never know what sort of technological breakthroughs will help law enforcement catch the perpetrators, even when you don't have a suspect. I uh, love the podcast, guys. Appreciate all the hard work uh, and keeping it entertaining and respectful, even when it's a such sensitive subject matter. And that is Jessica Breslin. I guess I said I was going up there at the end, wasn't I? Yes, indeed, you did go up there, Chuck. That was kind of a nice little flourish. Um, well, thanks a lot, Jessica. We appreciate the email. Um, and if you, sorry for being a month late and reading it, that was all Chuck. Um, and if you want to get in touch with us like Jessica did, um, you can go to stuffyoushouldknow.com, check out our social links, get in touch with us that way or you can send us a good old-fashioned email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works For more podcasts from iHeartRadio visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.